Welcome to the Band of History. Today we are discussing the Last Waltz at 45. This year commemorates the Last Waltz 45th anniversary, and I thought we would do a podcast discussing the film. There's been a lot of great stuff out there this year about the Last Waltz turning 45, and I thought we would add to the discourse today. I've brought two great guests to the fore for us to discuss the film. First is Brianna McCann, who has been on the podcast before, and she also was the curator and researcher for the Richard Manuel Archive, and she is a writer for Split Tooth Media. And I have my wife, uh, who is a podcast host, film buff, and band fan, Tegan Listen. We sit down, we discuss the film in depth. I think we got to some really good discussion. This is very laid back, so... Sit back, put your headphones on, and enjoy. Tegan, Bree, thanks for thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. The best question to begin this with is, you know, what impact did the last waltz have to the documentary film genre? And, you know, how has it influenced subsequent concert films? I guess I'll pose that first to you, Brie. Yeah, I feel like The Last Waltz, you know, while it didn't create the genre, I think it's really the first seminal moment uh, in, you know, the genre of concert films. Because never before had there been, you know, in my mind, a concert film that was that immersive and that kind of raw. And you know, especially because you see Martin Scorsese kind of flipping it on its head and never showing, you know, the audience, taking a lot from the Red Shoes, um, Powell and Pressburger's film, and, and choosing not to do that is really like such a, for the time, in my mind, revolutionary concept of it's fully on the musicians. And so I feel like that's one of the greatest influences we see in a lot of concert films to come after that is really trying to make it as intimate as possible um, and that's in my mind maybe the biggest influence yeah the intimacy is an interesting component of it because well today and and back then you saw a lot of the audience you saw a lot of the other things that were going on not necessarily the music itself so that was definitely a game changer um Tegan, for you what about what about the impact the last waltz had on documentary what do you what do you think what's your just kind of general overview of it yeah, well, I think that even looking at the box office today, we see like Killers of the Flower Moon and we see the Eras Tour dominating. And those are all both, I think, clearly linked to The Last Waltz, which is interesting considering, like you said, it's been 45 years for it to still be a clear thread to what's popular in cinema today. I think that what makes The Last Waltz so interesting is that it acts not necessarily as a promotion piece for the subject which I find that can be pretty prevalent I guess I'll say in some uh, more modern rockumentaries and that's why I think it's sort of stood the test of time and then I think that the best of the documentary genre that have been inspired by it are the ones that sort of learn that lesson as well and obviously in the last waltz it makes sense because it's supposed to be an ending it's not here's how great this artist is so buy their next album but i think that that 
is a big impact. And then you can look into, obviously, Scorsese's career, the legacy of the band, the impact that there's been there. And and just to connect it in terms of when you mentioned the era's tour documentary and Killers of the Flower Moon, for anybody that's not up to, to current speed, Martin Scorsese did Killers of the Flower Moon, which just came out, be an Oscar contender most definitely, and era's it's the Taylor Swift documentary of her most recent concert tour, correct? Yes, <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> okay. I want to unpack a little bit about the the kind of promotional aspect of it uh when you t- when you talk about that a lot of mo- modern rockumentaries or music documentaries being promotional in in large part this almost feels like the anti-promotional concert in a lot of ways um context is obviously important here looking back at something 45 years later but it almost rings to me as something that is like a cautionary tale in on a long in a in a way especially about the band specifically you know not all of them necessarily come across great in the movie it really kind of highlights i think the excesses of the late 70s rock culture that's been written about a lot kind of also the dawning of a new era of music that they probably weren't aware of and kind of the death of rock as we know it that's kind of the end uh, of the classic quote-unquote classic period of rock Richard Emanuel called that period for himself the beige period and I think that could probably be applied to a lot of other individuals but Brie what do you think about that in terms of the uh the commercial or the commerciality if that's even a word of of uh of this film right and I think Tegan makes such a great point with that that I had never even thought of that it takes such a different approach because it's not really trying to convince anybody of anything it's just this is this event this is the the end and kind of like you said tyra like a cautionary tale almost you know you see this is a a moment that my father who watched the movie really latched onto is whenever robbie starts listing you know all the people that died young on the road and things like that, you know, really kind of speaking to an element of fear that I had never even considered. And then tying it to that, you know, cautionary tale, non-commercial aspect. There's nothing about it that's really, I think, glorifying or giving any glamour to this lifestyle. That's not really the point. And even as an aside, it doesn't doesn't glorify anything. Because like you said, I mean, not everybody appears in the best of shape. Uh, in that movie, but it still succeeds in being something that that is kind of a celebration. And so it's fascinating in the way that it's not trying to do any of these things, and yet it still has that impact. I feel like I should walk back my statement a little bit, thinking about the Neil Diamond involvement and like the kicking off of solo careers as well. But I also think that this is why like not showing the audience works so well because it's not like I know there's the famous Scorsese quote about how he didn't want to have like a shot of teen girls in the audience crying and cut to Rick Danko looking like a model. And so by eliminating that aspect, it just makes it feel less promotion-y and feel more like this is just documenting 
a time and telling the story of the band at that time. And that's kind of where it leaves it and what makes it feel, I think, more timeless than some other documentaries. We're getting really deep into it about what what's commercial and what's not, but like the lore of it, like the Neil Diamond for sure. Um, the solo careers maybe, but uh, you can almost read Rick. I think we're referring to Rick Danko's section in particular. It almost reads as a little bit less of a promotion of it, more of an uncertainty even in himself and kind of what's left unsaid there in that scene. It's like, yeah, I'm doing this, but is this the right thing? Um, not like, hey guys, check out my new record. It's coming out, you know, December 1st, 1977 or something like that. You know what I mean? So, um, but let's, let's unpack Scorsese a little bit because you could have had a lot of people direct this movie and it could have come out a bunch of different ways. Um, obviously Robbie had a big hand in this film, um, as well, but you know, it's definitely a product of Martin Scorsese's vision um, how has Scorsese contributed to the success of this film? How has his, his approach to this led it to be this enduring piece of content? Because remember, Scorsese had some success early on, Mean Streets um, and uh, Taxi Driver. And he was at the time also making New York, New York, which many would maybe consider his first real commercial film, but he was like an indie kind of filmmaker and they kind of pluck him to do this. Those sensibilities when we're talking about commercial nature of a film and other things have definitely rubbed off on it. How do we feel he contributed to it? Yeah, well, I do think that he elevates the genre. I know like it was obviously quite new while he was doing it, but even in comparison to modern rockumentaries for all the reasons that sort of we've been mentioning. So I don't think the film is successful if it's not a good film, period. It doesn't matter how popular the band is. It has to be good filmmaking. And I think that The Last Waltz is sort of key to the band's legacy. I don't think that the band fandom would I mean maybe even exist if it wasn't for that I don't know like I know Tyrell your story of finding the band and discovering them and falling in love with them and I I don't think that that would have happened for you without the last waltz and you're only seeing it because you love film and it's a good film so I think that that is part of the key and the fact that he was willing to take risks and the fact that the band felt so comfortable with him I think that that's pretty clear at least for most of the interviews that it feels like they're <laughs> hanging out Tyrell is shaking his head in disagreement for audio listeners yeah Brie what, what do you think I have some thoughts too but I want to kind of get everything out in the open and then we can kind of like take a look at it what do you think about Scorsese's involvement and his touch on this I think again Tegan makes a really great point that Scorsese is kind of what elevates this to the next level because you know the event is this magnificent thing on its own but there's so many things going on there that to make a compelling document of it is the harder task and so, you know, Scorsese, by making so many of the choices that he makes, whether it be, you know, doing these interviews and letting them be kind of roughshod at moments or, 
you know, making sure that the camera doesn't go off, you know, like whenever Eric Clapton's strap comes off, stuff like that. Like, those are things that only come from an expert filmmaker who knows what he's looking for. And I think that that's really what makes The Last Waltz something so lasting that kind of sticks with you, is that he, through a filmmaker's mind, creates these little moments, these little snapshots of this much broader event. And I think that that's why, you know, it, it really introduces people to the band. That's why it sticks with them. And, and even if you're not a fan of the band, you know, I've seen so many people on Letterboxd who will maybe start with saying, I don't like the band for some reason, but I think this is a great film. And I think that's really kind of Scorsese's mark on The Last Waltz. Yeah, the the band, I think, is almost a subheading of the of the whole thing for a large part of the audience uh as weird as that might be for band fans because you have an all-star lineup of um more culturally relevant people in it uh bob dylan Joni mitchell neil young particularly just like off the top of my head ringo star even if it's a small one at the end there so there's 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 that um it, it i i have a challenging kind of view of the film because there is no doubt that it's influential and that uh it's the discovery tool and it's what's made the band relevant there's no denying that uh without that artifact and people revisiting it every year the conversation would be definitely muted uh daniel Rohr, who directed once were brothers once like likened it to if without the last waltz the band would be like little feet um another great band from that era but significantly less culturally relevant i'd say than the band um again nothing about talent but just about cultural cachet i want to spin this into another question is i don't really enjoy the interview segments of the film overall there are some good parts of it but i find them kind of crude and i find them like crude in 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 terms of how they're constructed and i don't think they really do a lot to explore the band in the way that I think a filmmaker should. I find at multiple moments, everybody but Robbie and Levon to an extent is rather uncomfortable with the interview setup. Like they're almost being held hostage. There's the one famous moment where like Levon's kind of panning away from the camera and it follows him and you can see behind his eyes. He just like, doesn't really want to be there. Um, and you know, Richard doesn't really come across overly great, nor does Garth. He has some eloquent moments, but it's not really that great. And I think it's the filmmaker's job to kind of like put these people in a position to look great. It's their, it's their movie. And I think only effort is made to make Robbie look good in this. And he's clearly the most comfortable with it, which helps there, but the others, not so much though, you know, Levon oozes charisma, which I think is just, an inherent byproduct of who he is, not because of his comfort level. Two questions out of that rambling. One, do you think Scorsese could have done a better job with the interview section? And two, Martin Scorsese continued to make films for 45 more years after this, including what we mentioned, Killers of the Fire Moon, which some people might consider his best film ever. It's too early to tell, I think, for me, but it's he's continued to make good films. Could he have done The Last Waltz today in a hypothetical, and would it be better? Could Martin Scorsese, the director today, do a better job making the film? So two questions there. I'll start with you, Bree. 
Yeah, that is that is a lot to ponder, but that's an excellent question. I think, you know, I definitely agree overall with the sentiment about the interviews that, you know, just by virtue of the fact that Robbie was so involved, you know, with the movie and with Marty, that I say Marty as if we're like best friends, Scorsese, <laughs> um, that you know, he just, he naturally gets more screen time and that's allowed to make him look better, you know, than, than some of the, the other members of the band. And, you know, that's, that's part of the movie that I've, I've wrestled with, you know, especially having done so much, you know, research and work with, with Richard in particular, that's one thing that always gets me is that he comes across so poorly, but and that's just where he was at the time, right? It, you know, that's the difficult thing. But to the end of if Scorsese could make this movie today and in a hypothetical, wonderful universe where everybody's still alive, I think he could and it would maybe be better because I think maybe he would have more separation from, like specifically to the interview segments would maybe be better because I think maybe he would have more separation from his subject now that would allow him to kind of take a step back and maybe tailor those a little bit more. Um, you know, cause I've come to accept them kind of as the product of what they are in that situation, but that's definitely an interesting idea. What say you Tegan? Yeah, that's, those are two difficult questions. On the interview element, I kind of feel the opposite where, and this could be my context of being like immersed in the band, whereas if this was my only knowledge of them, maybe I would feel different. But I quite like that the interviews are sort of nothing but vibes. Like, to me, they're not trying to like tell the backstory of the band actually it's just sort of highlighting what they were like at that time and that's what I enjoy I actually find that some of the concert footage bugs me more like if they are showing you know Robbie singing when I know that it's someone else singing that I think irritates me more than the interviews Obviously, there is the case that, you know, Garth and Richard are featured much less than any other member of the band. And that sucks because I wish I could see, you know, I'd watch a 10 hour documentary of them. But I do find especially like the little dynamics, say, between Rick and Richard that I feel like are highlighted just because it's them hanging out with the camera rolling. That's what I find really valuable. And I do respect that early in the film, it's shown that Scorsese's working with Robbie. It has, you know, the little moment where you see Robbie saying, do you want me to say that again? Or do you want me to plug that in? It's showing the cuts and that's how it opens. So you do have to kind of read between the lines, but I do appreciate that he's saying like, here, I'm making a film with my new friend. Um, so I do like that. And related to could he do the film better today, I'm leaning towards no, just based on his more recent rockumentaries that I just personally haven't enjoyed as much. 
but I think it could be the element of, I don't know, stardom, I guess, that the bands he's featuring are at now. Like, it's different to be doing a documentary on the band then to be doing a documentary, say, on Bob Dylan now and knowing what Bob Dylan means today. And so maybe that's part of the element, but I feel like my favorite part of The Last Waltz is that it kind of humanizes the band and that it it feels like to me when I'm watching it, like I'm just hanging out with them. And that's my highlight. Yeah, it does. It doesn't make them superheroes, at least most of them. I think I think that's one of the problems I have. With, I'll be clear before people come with their pitchforks at me. I'm not anti Robbie. I think Robbie does a great job in this film and it highlights a lot of the great parts about Robbie as a musician. Um, and he's charismatic, though Levon is more charismatic and I don't care who you are. It just appears that way. It's just a natural thing. But I think that's one of my things that I'm having a hard time with with the interviews is I think Robbie is separate in the approach than the rest of the band. You get a lot more authentic hangs and vibes, as you call them, from the other guys. Where Robbie, I do feel like he is trying to narrate the film in a way. It opens with like, you know, him talking about 16 years ago, you know, all this crap. And then you get you get into like him talking about, you know, the, the, the stories and the myths around the making of the band and everything. More so than, you know, I guess Richard narrates the name. But it's it's a lot more off the cuff and rough around the edge. Than, than Robbie's more refined takes. And I think that's what I struggle with. The, 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 the cadence of it feels weird. It doesn't feel that it's the same. And that's, that's a challenge for me, I think, which makes it kind of like I would rather, I, I'm interested to see a cut of the movie with no interviews in it, just see how it would flow. I'd be interested to see what that looked like. I, I I would not want to be Martin Scorsese in, in 1976 trying to make this movie. I feel like it would have been very difficult to make. Now, kind of zooming out a little bit, the last waltz and its impact on the music industry as a whole, do you think it shaped the way we look at live music performances that have been documented? The only other film that I can kind of think of in that era, and it was earlier, that shaped the way, well, there might be a few, but I think of the Woodstock movie, the cultural touch piece. And there's some others in there, right? Like there's, there's the Stones one. Yeah. Monterey pop. There's, there's a few others in there, but what do we think? How did it shape the appreciation for live music performance over the years? More so than some of these other ones, or maybe it's not a contest, but. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'd be inclined to say yes, because if we think of, about like a lot of the the movies featuring bands before the last waltz, so you have things like you know like a Hard Day's Night, Help, and then you know like Herman's Hermits had their own movie, and every British invasion band basically has their own movie, which is delightful. But they're all centered around fake plots where they just happen to perform these songs or all of a sudden you have movies like the last waltz or like woodstock or monterey pop that are no longer some you know zany hijinks plot but instead are like the actual live performances and it's interesting to see that shift because it really does lead to the last waltz where all of a sudden 
you know, it has refined those aspects of of movies like Woodstock or Monterey Pop that are just, you know, a bunch of performances strung together to make it something that has a little bit more of a structure. It has more of a, you know, filmmaker's feel behind it, kind of like we were talking about. And so I think it definitely did kind of create this appetite for seeing artists perform live music for the sake of performing like live music on film, not to, you know, make some cash grab movie, but specifically just to see the music. Yeah, I totally agree. I also feel like there's the parts of the film that are highlighted a lot are like the moments that couldn't be recreated, like the Clapton strap moment and the cameras weren't running on muddy and that kind of thing where it's like the highlight of the film it's not you know necessarily the interviews or the story or just that you get to see the band it's like these were moments that you would only experience if you were there live in the moment except now it's on film and so it's like you this motivates you to go out and see live music because you could be there and see you know these moments that aren't going to be filmed so that's my perspective on it. Yeah, I guess the the habits of the of the average moviegoer and even the habits of the average music listener are a lot different than they are now. We consume things primarily in in video form now. You know, a lot of the musical moments we see happen at things like the Super Bowl, you know, through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. That's that's through a TV. Now you see and then it was YouTube. Think like Gangnam Style and things like that. And the music video generation of things. And then the YouTube music video. Now TikTok. A lot of the big musical things are happening on TikTok. It's all video. Going back then, though, I think it would be a foreign thing to be like, why would I go sit in a theater and watch a concert when I could just go to a concert? Um, that's That's kind of weird for us to think about because we didn't grow up in that way though I do like going to a concert. We all know what it's like to be in the audience at a concert. Um, so it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting. I think a lot of artists do it now too. I think a lot of, I think it's changed music and the appreciation of music at, from a musician's perspective though as well, not just an audience because I think people look at the last waltz and they're kind of like, wow, that's a, that's a great legacy piece it's a cornerstone of their their whole thing. Um, why can't I do that? I want that. I want to show people who I am, and I want it to be part of my legacy. I think it's different inherently, though, there when you make that decision because, again, it becomes a marketing tool. It becomes something that you're cons there's a concerted effort to do. I think with the band, it was kind of like, happenstance like oh yeah we're gonna do the show and we're gonna do this movie and then this movie becomes this big thing and it's like oh it's this big thing we're gonna do the concert we did the concert already now we're gonna go back and add all this extra stuff okay so it's different in its construction than a lot of people go in today but i think a lot of people want a lot of musicians want and a lot of fans want a last waltz for their for their favorite artists because it's a way to peel back the layers would you guys agree with that totally yeah 100 percent now, to spin it a little bit into something that I think is another very hard question, I don't know the answer to. I, I love making these questions because I don't know the answers to them, and I like to put you guys through the uh, the suffering here. And that question is, for The Last Waltz, like we mentioned, there's a lot of all-star guests on the lineup. 
And a lot of people watch this film because of these guests even more than the band. What kind of impact, if any, on the careers of these artists did, did The Last Waltz have? And did it change their trajectories at all as artists? Um, some of them were, you know, monstrous in, in their significance. And at first glance, you might be like, no, think about Bob Dylan. Like, no, there's no way The Last Waltz had any impact on Bob Dylan's significance. But some could say it did because even if you didn't watch for Bob Dylan, maybe you came out a Bob Dylan fan. It's something that is in regular rotation year after year. Some of the artists were also smaller and maybe got a boost. Is there is there anything that you guys think is true in that statement and any examples or things that you could point to where maybe that's true or, or is it false? Is it completely a bad position to start with? I feel like that it could have only helped them all, much like I was saying I would help the band's legacy. And the reason I think that is taking a look at the Woodstock film where some artists are featured and some artists aren't, the impact on those artists' legacies is very clear. I think that bands, say, that were featured in the Woodstock documentary are now all considered pretty iconic and icons of that decade. Canned heat? Like, come on. <laughs> Whereas lots of people don't even know, say, that the band was at Woodstock because they're not in the documentary. And so it's harder to say what like could or couldn't have happened because the guests are all featured in the last waltz but like you said it's bobby charles wasn't in the movie right well there you go and so i think that it if people are watching it every year it's only going to help their legacy i know personally for me i love van morrison's music because (laughs) of his performance in this film and that's a big part of it on a personal level for me. Yeah, I fully agree with that. It's a fascinating piece of of any artist's legacy, even if, you know, they didn't get some major boost because they were already bigger than the band. I mean, this is this is a film I love as a Bob Dylan fan because it's maybe the most unguarded he ever appears. And those couple of moments when he's, you know, interacting with the band to say, you know, like let's let's go to this song or or whatever it is he's saying. And I love that because that's not something you really get in any other any other Bob Dylan doc because he's always putting on some sort of facade. But just every artist that appears, again, you know, with the exception of, of like a Bobby Charles and going to your point, Tegan, you know, the people that didn't appear in Woodstock, we don't know about. Unfortunately, nobody really talks about, about Bobby Charles today. But it's this fascinating piece of any artist legacy you know it's like a neil young fan yeah he's coked out of his mind but i enjoy seeing him do it you know and it just kind of adds to the to the mystique and to the facade of of all of it and i think that that's such a great piece for any artist legacy that appears in there even if they're not you know billboard the the star of it yeah especially like i think you know we talk about bobby charles who like i don't like people don't even know he exists and he wasn't in that movie i feel like you know, who benefited from it, it could have been very similar to Paul Butterfield if he wasn't in the movie. Like, Paul Butterfield probably, it's hard to measure these things, but Paul Butterfield's probably a little bit more culturally significant than Bobby Charles is. Saying that as a huge Bobby Charles fan, probably listen to Bobby Charles more than I do 
Paul Butterfield. But Paul Butterfield being in that movie and people watching it all the time, they're like, who's this guy who can play the harmonica so great and is belting it out with Levon Helm? It's, it does something. Or like Muddy Waters. And some people might be like, what? Muddy what? He's a legend. It's a white audience that's consuming this film primarily. With a bunch of white musicians, there are a lot of people that probably, especially Americans and even Europeans that watch this movie, probably had no idea who Muddy Waters was. Irony being all of the music that they're playing is, you know, directly linked to to Muddy Waters. And that was important for the band, obviously. That's why they brought Muddy Waters out because they didn't have any direct connection. But what more connection do you need than being inspired and, you know, building your entire success off of an artist like Muddy Waters. So I think it had a, a, a very big impact on these artists, like we're saying, um, in an interesting way. I also feel like it's worth mentioning that it only works positively because the performances are so good. I feel like there are some performances, like I don't love the Dry Your Eyes performance, and I feel like that doesn't necessarily help Neil Diamond's legacy in any way. Same with I don't love the poets. I don't know their names. So it's not just like they're in the movie. So that means that they're now culturally significant. I think it's just also that they were doing killer performances and then it was happening to be captured and now is shared with everyone. So that's an element too. Yeah, like Caravan is just kind of electric and, and even Coyote which I've come to appreciate more and more as I've uh, watched this movie. Uh, and over time, I think it's quite legendary. And it helps that the band literally is, you know, one of the greatest backing bands of all time. I think for a lot of artists, that was an appeal as well. It's like, okay, I'm going to be playing with the best band there is. And, you know, we're going to we're gonna capture it on film. That, that's, that's a very cool thing. Um, now, when, you, when we, we talk about the 70s, I, I mentioned in the upfront how the film kind of acts as a cautionary tale about the 70s. You know, Brie, you mentioned the kind of coked out nature of, of, of Neil Young. They were all pretty coked out. You know, the drowsy eyes like Robbie in every scene. You know, Richard just kind of strung out on the couch. Um, you know, everybody clapped in. You know, everybody's just high as a kite. Um, and that was kind of that period in the late seventies and it kind of continued into the eighties. In what ways has the last waltz contributed to the kind of historical and cultural understanding of the music scene in the seventies? Because again, you, you have a band that's, you know, for musicians kind of set the seventies on its path in terms of bringing things back to basics. Uh, but you know, they're kind of punching above their weight class with this movie in terms of, in my opinion, it being in driving a lot of of the kind of storylines of the 70s to the forefront in this movie, all through the band, all through The Last Waltz. But maybe I'm wrong there. Do we have any opinions? I'll start with you, Brie, about, about understanding the music theme of the 70s through the film. Yeah, I think it absolutely does contribute to some understanding of the 70s because The Last Waltz really kind of feels like you know, the sobered up morning after of that whole experience, um, even though, you know, the event itself is in 76, so you still have a little bit left of the 70s, it still kind of feels like this bigger close to to a decade and to an experience um, in a way that 
you know, I don't think they intended to be broader than just, oh, the end of the band, but it, it does. I mean, you can't help but watch it and feel like something extraordinary just culturally is ending. And I think that that's one of the most lasting pieces about it is that it's a celebration, but you also leave feeling profoundly sad, like you've lost something bigger than just the band. And I think it's losing that that music scene that, for all of its terrible dangers and faults, created some really important and magnificent things. Yeah, I 100% agree. I feel like the thing that sort of stands out to me, weirdly enough, is the fashion. Like, I don't know, there's this image in your mind of like the 70s rock band and how the audience is dressed and how the band is dressed. But then to see it captured in reality, it's like, nope, these are just regular people. When you see the lineup waiting to get inside, I know they were told to wear like suits and dresses and you see most people are in, you know, ratty jeans the band what they're wearing on stage especially you know the change from you were talking about the Beatles and their suits to then Neil Young in his novelty t-shirt and Van in his velvet jumpsuit thing it feels like I don't know to me that you you don't know where the music industry is going to go from here it all feels to me disjointed and but that's why I think it's so interesting that it's captured because you can really get the sense of everyone thinking where do we go from here I don't even know what I'm supposed to wear tonight let alone where the industry is supposed to go I think that's some of the discomfort that we see in the interviews with the band not to bring it back there again but like it almost feels like it rings a little false and that, that kind of speaks to the overall, I think, detriment of that era. Like, it stopped being about the music and it started being about everything else. Like, even the evolution of what the band wears in that movie compared to their first official photo shoot up in the Catskill Mountains. They look like completely different people, you know? Not only have they aged like a decade, that's not really what I mean. It's like the, the what they wear and the aura that they're putting off. They look like kind of like mystic mountain people in the early 60s. There's like a naivety and an innocence to them, even though they're not because they've just been on the road playing circuits in the southern part of America for the last 10 years. But there's an innocence to it compared to the late 70s. There's like a, a drugginess, uh, like a dark kind of aura, like it's purples and, and, and gold. And like if you're putting it into colors, like the, that's how I think compared to like the kind of like more brown and and you know earthy tones of the the earlier era and i think that's like there's there's an undercurrent of just deceit there that i think really gets me in those interviews i think that kind of bubbles up a little bit and it's just kind of like i think that's maybe one of the problems and it's like it's it's unavoidable because it's just what they were living but it's just like it makes me uncomfortable almost a little bit i don't know if you guys feel that way but I've, I've watched the movie too many times. Yeah, I feel like you're very passionate about these interviews. Um, I only like, I like the silliness of their outfits in the interviews, particularly when Rick wears that plastic hat backwards. That's a key fashion highlight. Yeah, like I, yeah. And there's tons of funny moments 
there are funny moments that are intentionally funny. There are some moments that are funny because it's like so bizarre and out there. Uh, there are some moments that people, not me, but some people laugh at because these guys are like richer and so, so drunk. They're, it's kind of like they're making fun of them a little bit. Um, even though I feel like Richard is very funny as an individual. Um, and I think he's kind of putting it on for the camera, which again, not to get too heady, I think there's like this thing in documentary, like people do put it on. Like when you have a camera stuck in your face, you are going to act differently. Um, but yeah, I, I think the last waltz, okay, I'll just end it on this. And this is a big one for this, this section. Is it the most important artifact of the seventies music scene? Like of all mediums, like we're talking albums, we're talking, we're talking songs, we're talking like anything. You put it all in a pot. Is the last waltz the most significant document, asset, piece of material that came out of the seventies? I think that's a good question. I think I'm gonna say it's an important one because I don't want to commit myself to the most important uh, without more time to think and evaluate, but. I think the thing that helps the last waltz in being so significant culturally is the fact that it it just does have so many people in it from that particular era um and even from the era before it you know that you have muddy waters and you know you have the representatives of the blues like you have paul butterfield and then you know if you, you have emmy lou harris doing country and you know bob dylan being bob dylan so I think it's very significant in the way that it does kind of serve as this, like, I don't know, appetizer for lots of these other artists of the decade. And it kind of encapsulates maybe the end of that spirit of, like, kind of free love and collaboration. Um, so I definitely say it's significant, but I'm not going to commit myself to the most significant. <laughs> wow, such political answers from the group here. I'm going to say it is because I have no shame. No, actually, I I don't I don't think it, I don't think I think it's 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 a, too tough of a question to answer because there's just so much culturally going on with music during this, uh, you know, stage that I think it's tough. But it it is hard to not think of it as because you have such a diverse range of artists. You know, you have blues artists you you're you're representing in part the kind of african-american community you're representing folk you're representing appalachia you're representing like everything so it kind of does it in such a great way i think it it is definitely hard to beat but um two two of the final kind of questions here and they're tough ones as well not this first one as much but the second one um the impact of robbie robertson so you know, Robbie passed away. So I think I think it's a good time to reflect on Robbie, uh, his passing and his influence on the movie. We've talked about uh, in a lot in a lot of ways. This was his he masterminded this. This was his this was his project, and the kind of the rest just kind of tagged along, um, produced it, was involved heavily in the editing, putting the soundtrack together. His fingerprints are all over this. Um, so I just want to offer the floor. Because you two haven't been on the podcast uh, since, taking this is your first time, Bree, since. Um, Robbie Robertson, just a, just a few moments to kind of express any feelings about his passing and, and his influence in, in the film as a whole. I'll start with you, Tegan. Wow. Um, well, like I said, I think that without The Last Waltz, the band wouldn't have a legacy. And so saying 
Robbie's the one who orchestrated. It's like the band would not have a legacy without him doing that, period. And I feel like there's some, I don't know, confusion in the band group about why The Last Waltz is considered so great or, you know, Rock of Ages is the better album. Why? But it's because of all the elements we've been talking about and from the filmic sort of view of it this is why we're still talking about it today and that's thanks to Robbie I understand that you know this is the narrative now around the band I know that you know the band continued past the last waltz we know that but most of the world doesn't know that because what's put to film is what's truth and I think that that's what Robbie understood and why he knew to try and capture this. And so, like I've said, it's all thanks to Robbie that we're here, honestly. Robbie was the, he's like the engine in in the train. You need all the parts and he kind of pushed it forward. So you can't like undermine or underestimate that. Yeah, that's fair. Let me reword that. Like if Levon Helm say wasn't in this film, I don't think it would be good. I don't know that I would watch it. He's my favorite part. And so I'm not trying to say that Robbie could have single-handedly done this movie by himself, but I'm just saying if he's the one, like we're saying, that sort of started this and masterminded it, then he can take a lot of the credit for the lasting legacy that this film has created did it for like three and a half years. I think that's underestimated that people don't know too. It's like he dedicated like three, four years to this. So he was just like, this is, you know, this is my magnum opus. So like, I'm going to promote it until the day I die. You know what I mean? And that's, that's cool. Like you spent so long spending that much time doing something is just like kind of insane. So the fact that he did it and we have this document, it's just such a great thing. Bree, what do you think about the, the the whole Robbie passing and his his influence, his legacy, the last waltz, all of that? Robbie's certainly a complicated individual. And, you know, my thoughts on him have evolved oh. a lot um, over the years. And it was only shortly before his passing that I kind of made my peace with the fact that maybe he wasn't fully to blame for things that, that I had blamed him for. Um, in my time, you know, researching Richard, telling his story, Robbie comes out looking like a villain, basically, no matter what you do. And I came to realize that, you know, a lot of the reason that he he drives the end of the band here and the things that he does in the last waltz come from some internal level of, of fear of wanting to go out on top. And just kind of coming to peace with the fact that he was a complicated individual, just like anybody else, was great. And then, and then he died. And that was very bizarre. Um, but it was this moment of, you know, kind of like, like Tegan said, in a very kind of broad sense, you know, without Robbie, we would miss so much from this world musically. And, you know, the, the reason that he is so, you know, central, I think, in The Last Waltz, and this is something that didn't really occur to me until watching it again, you know, for the first time after his passing, was that, you know, there's nobody else that was really going to step in there and tell that narrative 
at that time. And even if it is a narrative that's that's biased towards him and, you know, later Levon goes more out of his way to challenge that, Robbie steps into a vacuum that's there and he makes he makes sure this document, you know, with the help of others, he makes sure this document exists. And, you know, for all of its faults, for for the many valid complaints we could have or questions we could have about it, I think Robbie's greatest legacy, even more than than the songwriting, than the guitar, than anything, is making sure that this exists so that generations to come can can feel like they're in this moment and, and understand this piece. It's it's crazy the the amount of work that he did. And in the complication of him as a character, I think what's fair to say is that they're all complicated characters. I think it's very easy to like put these people into boxes. You know, it's like they're a bad guy, they're a good guy, you know? And I think you're talking about a bunch of dudes that were rock stars in the seventies. They're complicated figures. Levon and Robbie take a lot of that oxygen up, but the rest were complicated too and had tons of good and bad qualities about them. And, you know, I think a lot of the discourse there is is noise uh, that people have created and put on them, not as much that they put on them themselves. And, um, yeah, Robbie did a lot. And, you know, with that, he makes himself look good. And by product, he makes most of his bandmates look good too right and i think that's that's a significant thing like you know daniel ends once we're brothers with levon helm playing the night they drove old dixie down because that's like what better performance exists out there like just in a vacuum there's very few that's such a emotionally charged impactful performance that's levon helm singing lead vocal he's the star in that moment like without that movie without Robbie kind of orchestrating the movie, you wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have that. You know what I mean? So like that's significant um, in and of itself. So I think the complication is the best part. Being able to pick apart these guys that we have the luxury to do, I think is the best thing. And, and people get their feelings hurt because, you know, it's, you know, it's not just rosy feelings or bad feelings. It's the in-betweens. At least that's what I'm interested in. And, you know, people get upset about that. But I'm like, I like that these people are challenging characters. I like that they have things that are negative about them and things that are positive about them. And, you know, with Robbie's passing, it was incredibly shocking. And, um, but what was really great to see is the kind of the unity that it brought, at least temporarily for the most part, that people had this kind of like, let's put aside anything right now. Like, let's talk about how impactful Robbie was, how impactful his influence on music was and what he, what he did for, uh, what he did for the you know rock music as a whole, and uh, God, it it's it's still pretty fresh. Tagging you, have, you had something you wanted to add? Well, I just wanted to say that one sort of lens that I look at the last waltz through that sort of helped me now with Robbie's passing as well has been his lifelong friendship with Martin Scorsese. I feel like. There's this myth of him like concocting a plan and calling up like, oh, this director. When in reality, I think watching the film, you sense that friendship and that brotherhood. And now seeing that they worked together, you know, for 45 years and Robbie was a part of the last film he released. And so I think that that is also a positive spin on it. It's not that Robbie... you know, was evilly planning some master plan. I think there was an element of 
him wanting to do something with someone he connected with that turned into a lifelong friendship. And then, of course, his friend wanted to feature him more in the movie and wanted to make him look good. And, you know, there's not this other element outside of, like, the simplest answer sometimes. Yeah, I think Robbie always wanted to be in the movies in some way. Like, he tried his hand at starring and that didn't really work out, but I don't think he cared. He just wanted to be in the movies in some way. And, like, that's actually one of the best gifts out of this is the fact that, like, he finally got a way in. He met Martin Scorsese, as you said, Tay, and that created a lifelong partnership, which is, like, the most rewarding thing, I think, for him and us as an audience because he did some great stuff with Martin Scorsese through, you know, the next four decades, right? So... Um, if anything, that that is something that we should uh, definitely treasure because it, it's very significant. Um, and then, you know, I think we touched on this last question, just the challenge that people may have with the film um, in the ways it represents the band as a whole. Uh, how do we reckon with that? And I don't think we need to answer that question because I think we did throughout these other ones. But I think just like the people, the film's complicated nothing's perfect but the film does a good job overall i think representing the era the the musicians the complications of it it's a, like i said earlier i wouldn't want to be martin scorsese directing this movie it's so complicated it's so big it's so bold so let's end on a little bit more of a positive note an uplifting note challenging note though favorite performance Favorite performance in the whole movie. I, I ranked, when I first started the podcast, I ranked them on Instagram. And I, I, w I went back and looked at that. I've since archived that post because I was just like, I went back and I was like, what the hell was I thinking? But it changes over time. So, Brie, for you, favorite performance. And this one, you can feel okay changing after because it, you know, it's not like we're locking you down to the most important artifact of an era. But favorite performance today. You just saw it, right? You saw it on the weekend? Yeah, I literally just saw it yesterday, like less than 24 hours. What, so. what's, who's still, who is still just at the front of your mind right now from that film? That's not the band, but a guest. Oh my goodness. I, I would sit here and name every single one. I think, you know, it's hard to say anything other than the weight in the last Walt suite, but... You know, I love, I love what Joni Mitchell does with Coyote, Neil in his, his coked out way, you know, me always grappling with my, my weird love for Eric Clapton. He gets showed up and I love that, but, oh man, I think it's going to have to be the weight. I mean, it's just, it's iconic. I think the performance that stands out to me as a highlight and one that when I see like the last waltz performed live is always a highlight is Van Morrison but then there's also Dixie that I feel like sums it up but we're talking about yeah well then it's Van Morrison the yeah Van the man yeah no that's 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 the safe pick Tegan oh. <laughs> I'm just joking like it's hard to beat that the energy is just un unsurpassed Mine, mine was, mine was Van for a long time. I don't know what my favorite is these days. Uh, I think there's something. If we're talking strictly, if we're talking strictly concert, like there's something really commanding about Muddy Waters. But I, upon watching it yesterday or no, or Saturday or whenever we watched it, 
um, Joni Mitchell, Coyote. Um, and I say this too, because I hid that post because when I went back and looked at that ranking, I think I had Joni Mitchell like super low. And it's not because I didn't like, like it's hard not to not like a performance in there, like, cause they're all good, but like, it just didn't connect with me at the time, but there's just the, the, the poetry of the lyrics and the way the band backs her is just so wonderful. So that's, that's currently my favorite. And then I, I am a, I'm a sucker for the Emmy Lou Harris, uh, Evangeline in, in the soundstage. Bree, had you seen it on the big screen before? No, that was my first time. It, it felt like the first time seeing the movie itself. Right. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I wondered if it seemed different. We've seen it a few times, right? We saw it with Robbie and Scorsese at TIFF oh. like years ago and they introed the film, uh, which was kind of crazy. And then we saw it at Hot Docs uh, here in Toronto um, as part of like a rock uh, and documentary festival there's just something about it right like there's a visceral nature of it being in the theater as opposed to watching it at home yeah and i find the sound like we don't uh, in our home have a crazy tv sound system but to hear it in these big theaters where i don't know it's like i can hear little voices of people and the different breakdown of the music it's a very cool experience i was happy to see i don't think that happened for us in canada but i was happy to see it happening all over the U.S. Yeah. Go see it if you can. Even rent a theater and go see it. Like, I'd do that. I think if you, like, are out there listening and you're like, I missed this, and you have a big desire, if you were, like, to go to a theater and be like, we want to show this, and, like, I'll do an event and we'll sell tickets, I, I think it would sell out. Because, like, people just want to see this movie. So it's like, there is a way, if you really want to, I would highly recommend it. Also, if you want to listen to how they like did the sound check out the podcast plug to the podcast i actually talked about the kind of the revolutionary technology that they used on that movie to make it for the theaters which is crazy um but okay i think this was a really good discussion that went in a bunch of different directions that was super fun i hope you guys enjoyed it i just want to give you guys a moment to reflect on anything that you didn't get to add that you feel like you wanted to add or plug anything that you want to plug. I'll start with you, Brie. Yeah, I don't really think I have anything to add. Just, you know, grateful to to be here and chat about The Last Waltz and celebrate it for its 45th birthday. Tegan, how about you? Any last thoughts and anything you want to plug? No, I feel like I shared all my thoughts, but I do feel like every time I watch The Last Waltz, I notice something new. And so, you know, you you can add me on later and I'll add more, but yeah, I have a podcast. You can find me at our golden twenties. If you want to hear me talk every single Tuesday. Yeah. If you're a guy or gal in your twenties and want to learn how to navigate it, check out our golden twenties. Great podcast. They were on the Spotify podcast of the month, like a few months ago, pretty big feat. So check it out folks. Um, thanks to you both for coming on um real film buffs i love just talking documentary film obviously last waltz with you guys so i really appreciate you guys coming on uh, i hope the audience listening enjoyed it go follow these guys online i will include all of the information to 
the relevant channels if they have them in the in the description uh, of wherever you're listening to this. So thanks again, guys, and I, I appreciate it. And there'll be more of these in the future. Um, happy Last Waltz Month. I'm making that up right now. Happy Last Waltz Month, because let's celebrate for a month. That was my discussion of The Last Waltz at 45 with Bree McCann and Tegan Listen. Make sure you check their stuff out, guys. Like I mentioned in the upfront, and they they talked about at the end there, they do a lot of great work. Bree did all of the great work with the Richard Manual Archive, um, and while that has concluded, it is still all available, so you can check that out. She also is one of the best writers that you can follow today. Uh, her work over at Split Tooth Media. She talks about film, she talks about music, and uh, it's, it's always a pleasure when she releases a new piece. So I'll include that down below as well. Um, and then Tegan, my wife, I'm a little biased. She's uh, been a supporter of the show since the very beginning. She's edited some of the episodes. She's been a great sounding board and support system for this. She's also a very successful podcaster herself. Our Golden 20s, as we talked about, um, lifestyle podcasts, women and men in their 20s, navigating that, what that's like. I know some of the audience here uh, would appreciate something like that. So go check out Our Golden 20. She co-hosts with one of her best friends. Uh, it's a it's a great show. And uh, The Last Waltz of 45, really interested to hear your folks' thoughts and opinions on it. You know, The Last Waltz, we do talk quite a bit about it, um, but there's always great opinions and insights and shares out there. So please, you know, consider finding us on social media, joining the conversation. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I guess it's not Twitter anymore. It's X. And we're all there at the band podcast. Uh, come on over, join the conversation. There is an ever-growing community online, which is great to see. Uh, additionally, if you want to support the show monetarily, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash the band of history. Early access to the episodes, you get a lot of extra bonus content, bonus episodes, writing, etc. We have a book club, which is bi-monthly, that's going fantastic. Uh, we had our first one not that long ago. We have another one coming up uh, this weekend, actually. So we vote on a book, uh, band-related, and we read it. So definitely go over to patreon.com slash thebandhistory to check that out. Um, but yeah, I want to I want to thank everybody for listening to the show. I hope everybody's been enjoying the episodes, the new mini episodes, odds and ends. We just released the first one uh, on Orange Juice Blues. A lot of great feedback on that, so thank you for listening to that. And there's there's many more things to come in the latter part of 2023 into 2024. I want to thank you guys for joining along on this crazy ride. It's been a crazy year, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. See ya. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 